You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. The second most common cause of cancer deaths among women worldwide is cervical cancer. It claims the lives of 10 women each day in the United States. The latest weapon in the fight against cervical cancer is the human papillomavirus vaccine. We will discuss how it may help prevent cancer of the cervix during this Clinician's Roundtable. Welcome, I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Atlanta is my guest, Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine, and one of the authors of a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine on the HPV vaccine. Welcome, Dr. Alt. Thank you for having me. Dr. Alt, PEP tests are very effective in preventing cervical cancer, but even in the U.S., many women don't get regular PAP tests. How will the HPV vaccine supplement the annual PAP test for American women? Well, it's a question of primary prevention and secondary prevention, or the, you know, the old proverbial ounce of prevention, pound of cure. So we do about 50 million PAP smears in the United States every year, 50 to 60 million. About 7% of those are abnormal. Of course, very few of those abnormalities are going to work out to be cervical cancer during the workup that a gynecologist would do. Indeed, not that many of them are going to be premalignant, but we do have this problem in the United States of health disparities, and it's particularly glaring with cervical cancer. We know the rates for Hispanic women and African-American women are about twice the national rate than it is for Caucasian women for cervical cancer. So we have this problem that people don't have access to pap smears in the United States. And it is the lack of access that accounts for the disparity? I'm sure it's multifactorial, but the three risk groups you see frequently, and there's a nice article in a recent journal, in a recent article on obstetrics and gynecology, the official journal of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists that answers some of those questions. The, the risk groups that we see are rural women, frequently Caucasian, who do not have access to health care. And so you see a lot of that population in the Appalachian area, for example, urban African-American populations, which we have right here in Fulton County, Georgia, Our rate is about twice the national average, as well as Hispanic women. And so the combination of those three groups that don't have access to care or don't take advantage of the care they do have is what drives our cervical cancer rate in the United States. The Federal Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices and the American Cancer Society both recommend the vaccine be given to all girls sometime between the ages of 9 and 12. But the American Cancer Society differs from the Federal Advisory Committee in that they do not recommend that women between the ages of 19 and 26 years of age receive catch-up vaccinations. They think the cutoff for catching up should be 18 years old. What do you think about these recommendations? Well, I think my reading of the American Cancer Society recommendations are that there should be a discussion about the vaccine in the older age range. And so women in their late teens and early 20s may have been exposed to the virus. And so certainly you'd like to have a good heart-to-heart talk with your doctor about the risk benefits and alternatives to this vaccine. And, you know, I think you could say risk benefits and alternatives of any medical intervention. And I think that was the point of the American Cancer Society guidelines. I I think one of the One of the potential fears of getting people vaccinated is that we're going to have less pap smears being done. And of course, in the short-term future, pap smear screening is going to continue to be done because we may vaccinate people who already have an infection, or we may not get to the types, the 30% that are not in the vaccine. 
I'm wondering why would it hurt to to encourage these women in their early 20s to to catch up? What would be is it cost? What would be the downside? Well, well, usually what I've been telling my patients is benefit and lack of benefit. And certainly it is a very expensive vaccine. And so that would be the major downside, I would think, to vaccinating that group. I think we have some data, though, that would indicate that even in a sexually active population in their 20s, is still a good target for this vaccine. In our own data from the vaccine trials, we know that 75% of the women were not exposed to any of the four types in the vaccine. And then if you took another slice of the pie, about 93% were exposed to one or zero types in the vaccine. So you'd really have an incredibly small group that would be uh, exposed to all four types. The best thing about that data is that it's very similar to data that was just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association with a cross-sectional study of the United States women. And so I feel pretty good about the recommendation up to age 26 because there are several different data sets you can look at and get to the same conclusion. And again, it, the results point to age. In your study, the vaccine was most effective, nearly 100 percent among women who had never had sex and women never exposed to HPV. In people that had never been exposed to that type of HPV, that's correct. It seems that one of the next moves you might want to make as researchers would be to design a longitudinal study and follow young girls who've been vaccinated. Is something like that in the works? That is being done. There was a publication in the journal Pediatrics last year. Uh, Dr. Block was the first author on it where they vaccinated the 9 to 15-year-olds, and they would like to follow them. They're trying to convert that into a longitudinal study. Those types of studies are extremely challenging. I'm not involved in that study in a way. I'm kind of glad because you can imagine, you know, people going off to college or their parents moving or that type of thing. That's going to be an extremely challenging undertaking for that group. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine. And we are talking about the HPV vaccine. And I imagine only time will tell how long the vaccine will last and whether a booster will be necessary at some point. What kind of research is being done on that on that angle? Well, there are a couple of things being done, one in the United States and one internationally. There, there are plans afoot at the CDC, which of course is right here in Atlanta, to do post-marketing studies to look at some of the issues about type replacement as well as the longitudinal effect of the vaccine. The other thing that we did that was a good idea in retrospect was to sign up a lot of patients in the Scandinavian countries. There's an article now in the in Lancet by Jorma Pavanon, one of the Finnish researchers that's been involved in this research. And in, in those countries, they have very centralized medical records. What I usually tell my colleagues there is they don't have any HIPAA requirements. You know, they can have these large cancer registries that are linked by unique identifiers. And so since we started studies of the quadrivalent vaccine there five or six years ago, that cohort of women that got vaccinated is ahead, and plus they're linked, you know, to the cancer registries and that type of thing. So the waning protection will probably be found in that group first. There are, of course, immunological studies that you could look at, and some of my colleagues here at the Emory Vaccine Center are going to be involved in that type of research. So, so there's a couple of ways you can 
go at that, either in the lab or out in the field. From what's known about the vaccine so far, it's heralded as being very safe. Are there any known side effects? There are, and that's in the New England Journal of Medicine article as well. And your listeners certainly could guess that everybody's going to get a sore arm from this vaccine. That's not rocket science, I don't think, by any stretch of the imagination. We did see a lot of headaches, but those weren't different from the placebo group versus the active vaccine group. And so about one out of a thousand or a little bit less actually was the rate of adverse serious events that we saw and most of those were local reactions. And a lot of that's in the FDA labeling. So certainly again, your listeners could look that up. There's some post-marketing data that's beginning to be published or not published, but at least publicly available. Again, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices that you mentioned earlier had a meeting in February and they looked at the post-marketing reporting from the first 2 million doses. And again, there wasn't really any severe side effects. There were three cases of Guillain-Barre out of the 2 million doses. And I'm a gynecologist, so I'm not going to be able to explain too well to you what Guillain-Barre is all about, but it's a you know, multifactorial neurological disease and has been associated with some vaccines. And actually, two of those three people, if I'm remembering correctly, got other vaccines, which may or may not be associated with Guillain-Barre. So, uh, so, but that rate of three out of two million, Dr. Markowitz mentioned when she was presenting this data, it might be less than what you'd expect in the general population. So I think all the safety data right now is, is pretty reassuring. Let me ask you about one thing, though, that occurred in the recent study that was pointed out in editorials. Apparently, there was a woman in the study who developed a rare form of cancer, possibly associated with HPV, and apparently you would expect to only see this in one out of every 100,000 women, and there were only 2,500 women in the study. What did you make of that? In the entirety of all the prospective randomized phase two and phase three trials, there have been about 20,000 women vaccinated. And so that one case is a little blip on the radar. And unfortunately, vulvar cancers are not that common in the age group we studied. So certainly we'll need to follow up on that. I was not really involved in that case, but I know that the patient is doing fine from the reports from that investigators. So, but you always have to watch for these rare events. And so that's what the post-marketing surveillance is all. Well, what do you think about the concern that has been raised about the vaccine taking care of the two most dangerous viruses and then perhaps other HPV strains moving in to pose more of a threat once those are taken care of? Well, that's an interesting concept, you know, and some of that comes from a prior vaccine, you know, the Prevnar vaccine, it's a pneumococcal vaccine. And again, you know, I like to go to the ACIP meetings and the concern that's been raised there is the overall rate of pneumococcal disease has gone down quite a bit since Prevnar was introduced a few years ago, but there's this little blip on the radar of the types that are outside the vaccine causing more invasive disease. And so that's, of course, worrisome to epidemiologists. So I think it's a little bit of a stretch to go from this big streptococcal bacteria that has lots and lots of genetic material, lots and lots of different genotypes to an 8,000 base pair DNA virus, a very small, limited genome. I'm not sure HPV is going to be able to adapt that much. I think since we started these studies, there's also been some studies that quantify 16 and 18 as being more of a risk than some of the other types. So, you know, the other types, even though they are high risk, they're not quite as high risk as 16 and 18. And again, some of that data has just been published in the past couple of years, the malignant potential of the 31, 33, 45 group is, is a little bit less than what we may have thought when we started these studies. So I think those two factors taken together, we'll have to find out. That is another point, though, for post-marketing 
studies of this vaccine is to look for those type of things. Merck, who who makes Gardasil, has has launched a national campaign they call One Less, and there are lots of advertisements and commercials about that, encouraging females to see their physician for regular checkups and screenings and for those who are eligible to begin the vaccination. Has the campaign um, and other information in the media been effective in encouraging young women to get the vaccine? Based on information I've heard at the ACIP, there are about 30 million women who could participate in a vaccine program for HPV in the 9 to 26-year range. And I think we're up to about 4 million doses of that vaccine given out. So certainly it appears to be successful. I, I hope that one of the reasons we had a campaign like that is because there just aren't that many patients or physicians that a few years ago were able to make a connection between HPV and cancer. And so that's been pretty obvious in patient and provider surveys both for the past few years. I I suspect a lot of that has changed over the past year. But if you go back a few years in the literature, you can find out that people don't really understand that connection. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine. Thank you, Dr. Alt. Thank you. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.